Hey guys, welcome to episode 214 of the podcast with my guest, Annie Leonard. I wanted to thank Amir Talai, a past guest of my podcast and a dear friend for e-introducing Annie and me. Um, I am excited to share with you guys things that inspire Annie and kind of what her uh, teenage years were like and how they impacted her ability and confidence to make waves in the world and to feel like she could uh, be impactful because I know that's something that... Uh, we all kind of struggle with sometimes. Uh, and I want to thank Christine for her email. And I will get caught up with more soon. But um, I want to say anybody who's around uh, in the Southern California area this weekend, uh, Stan Against Evil is going to be having a kind of a sneak peek um, panel and uh, Q&A with John C. McGinley and me and uh, creator and co-star Dana Gould at Monster Palooza on Saturday. So uh, check that out. I tweeted about it. And um, I'm sure there's other stuff I'm forgetting that I want to let you know about. But uh, it wouldn't be an intro if I didn't feel like I was forgetting something. So hope you guys uh, enjoy the episode and I will talk to you soon. Thanks. Now entering Nerdist.com. requisite how's the weather in the bay area just because um i don't feel like i ask that with every guest that i podcast remotely but because it's sort of my favorite place in the world in many ways uh it's always nice to kind of do a little check-in and find out how everything's going up there you know everything is always going great here it is beautiful and sunny and not too hot and not too cold and i just checked my tomato plants out back are just so um abundant you know it's great oh now you're really rubbing it in <laughs> i know i don't usually tell people that because it's hard not to gloat if you live in the bay area but you know you guys can all gloat back when we have our next big earthquake yeah well there well being i'm in la so who knows what's going to happen down here i feel like you can you can use the earthquake thing when people in texas are angry but um in la i sort of have that risk as much as i have anything else but i don't have the weather um oh, where are you sorry. from original oh that's okay annie did you grow tomato plants when you were a teenager where were where were you uh going where were you when you were a teen i grew up in seattle which is such an awesome place to grow up uh, yes, it is. Now, again, we're just sort of diving around on the West Coast here talking about some of the best places uh, on Earth, in my opinion. That's a very American, solipsistic point of view to have. But at least within the United States, I, I love Seattle. I love Portland. Me too. But, you know, I grew up in Seattle and then I lived in a lot of other places before I came back, you know, basically home. Berkeley is very Seattle-like. I left Seattle to go to New York, New York City, and then upstate New York for college and graduate school. Then I lived in Washington, D.C. for a decade. And then I lived in Bangladesh and India for three wow. years, then back to D.C. And then I finally said, it's time to go home. And so I came yeah. back to the West Coast. Uh, that is a very impressive uh, CV of places that you've lived. What, and, and talk about, too, like such different vibes in some of those places. Obviously, the sort of central focal point of the kind of energy of the city, at least the way people think of it from the outside, I guess, um, kind of wildly different. I mean, D.C. and Berkeley... 
that's got to be yeah, a pretty really different. different. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's so, I really noticed it when I'm at a dinner party and I ask everybody around the table, what do you do? And, you know, I think, wow, this is a different universe than Washington, D.C. Yeah, no uh, kidding. It, it's great. But they say the best way to learn about your home is to go somewhere else. And so I find that, you know, the more I travel, the more I understand what about home makes me so happy. Absolutely. That reminds me of, um, I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but uh, I love Barbara Kingsolver. And I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with her writing, but she... Um, she wrote a gorgeous, uh, she's, she's a great fiction writer and she also, uh, she's very, very interested in sort of biology, sciences, the animal world, flora and fauna. Um, and she settled in Tucson, which is where I was born and raised, uh, even though she's from the Appalachian uh, Mountains. And uh, she wrote a beautiful book of essays called High Tide in Tucson. Um, around one of the Bush's elections. I mean, we're talking, you know, sort of post Gulf war, I think. Uh, and her opening essay is basically, you know, I was, I, I had some sort of a bumper sticker that was in support of, you know, some, I don't even want to say fringe organization, but just something that was, you know, Nader-esque or, you know, Al Gore kind of inconvenient truth type um, acknowledgement, I think, on her car. And she was sort of almost run down by, I'm sorry to say, when when cliches prove real, because that's always, it doesn't help to perpetuate stereotypes, but some guy in like a big pickup truck just sort of screamed at her, you know, America, love it or leave it. And she, she says, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but she says she sort of had this moment where she kind of heard that expression in a new way for the first time and that she had this kind of epiphany and was like, you know what? I think I need to leave it for a while. And she moved to Europe and, and lived there for a year and just had the, the same, you know, very much that, that sort of experience of, I really had to get away from it, uh, to get a perspective on what was frustrating to me, what made me angry about it, what I wanted to change, but also to, you know, kind of reinvigorate my love of what makes, uh, makes it so special. And I think that I can totally relate. Every time I go to a new place, I think of new things I love here. But when I hear that sentence, um, love it or leave it, which I hear often when I'm out doing environmental work, I think of, I'll I'll choose to love it, and the way I choose to love it is to try to make it better. It seems to me that people that, you know, put their fingers in their ears and don't want to talk about growing inequality or childhood obesity or crummy public schools or pesticides or, you know, all these other things, people who don't want to acknowledge that, that's not how you love a country. You love a country by working through the list of problems and solving one and then going to the next. Absolutely. And, and, and I think, I mean, isn't that kind of what we're talking about here is that oversimplification of that's an easy thing to throw at someone, but there's nothing behind it. It's this flimsy tissue paper, you know, accusation, this sort of thing you can throw out there. Uh, that just doesn't hold any water at all. You can't back it up with anything because of exactly what you just said, this sort of idea of like, well, wait a minute. If that, then does that apply to this? Does that apply to this? Does that apply to this? If I love my... If I love my my body and my health, but I'm diagnosed with cancer, uh, is it a love it or leave it situation? Like, what does that even mean? You know what I'm saying? That's a great one. I often think about it as a parent. You know, if I had a kid who was doing drugs and littering and, you know, had all of these problems, 
I wouldn't say, that's all right, honey, I love you. Right. I would say, come on, let's shape up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'd say, I love you and shape up. <laughs> exactly. And, and so was Seattle for you, you know, obviously that is uh, a community, I think of it at least, uh, as um, a, you know, certainly not one, just one community, but, but a series of communities and, and a city that does have this kind of finger on the pulse of, of certain global awarenesses, environmental awarenesses that, you know, for better or for worse, you may not find in, you know, a city of industry in middle America. Was that in in terms of what you ended up pursuing and the voice that you end up being, um, in, in our nation, uh, did you feel like that was something that you really kind of got to know through the city of Seattle or was that something that was very independent and individual to you? I definitely think it's partly um, largely from growing up there. And, you know, when you grow up someplace, whatever you're around, you get so acclimated to it, you don't realize it's an optional thing, that somebody else might have a different set of priorities. So the two big things about Seattle that impacted me were um, clearly the um, proximity to and commitment to the environment. People ride bikes and hike, and the city is so green, and there's water everywhere. And on a clear day when you can see the snow-capped Olympics on one side and the snow-capped Cascades on the other side, it's just like, how can you have any other feeling other than just humility and awe? So the environment was a big piece, but also, you know, it's a big international port city with just a lot of people coming and going. And I grew up right by the university. There were just people from lots of different countries, lots of different kinds of food, just a real international outlook. I I think from being such a port city that also just sort of piqued my curiosity about the world. Mm -hmm. I didn't know there was any other way than to care about the environment and be interested in the world. Well, that's always interesting to me. I mean, I think I podcast someone and I'm sure these, the listeners remember better than I can at the moment, but, um, Someone, I don't know if it was Zelda Williams or Colin Hanks, somebody who grew up, I think, in the Bay Area, said, uh, you know, I lived this sort of cloistered um, liberal life where I quite honestly didn't know that I knew any Republicans and remember it being this sort of event moment when I finally met somebody who had, you know, very different, very vocal views, who was just standing next to me in a room, rather than it being this kind of thing that got discussed uh, on television or by, you know, by my parents complaining about people that I didn't know, and, you know, kind of couldn't really put into a context of like, oh, this is a flesh and blood person that I'm just talking to. Um, And that's so funny about these sort of bubbles, because I think we hear a lot about the the other side, the kind of the bubble of, well, this person hasn't interacted much with any other types of, you know, races or cultures, uh, or this is the way their parents, you know, raise them. And, and it's this kind of thing that there's like a, a pattern that has to be broken. And, um, and so I'm, I'm always kind of, I mean, tickled is sort of a, I don't mean that in a condescending way, but I'm, I'm always really interested when people are like, no, listen, I didn't, like this was these voices were very loud and they were my reality and and I wasn't dealing with a lot of you know because like for example with Arizona that's a very divided state you know it's certainly ends up voting red but there are so many um very liberal people in it and so there's that was a day-to-day thing for me was this sort of like very open argument happening at any given time in that state uh, you know what I mean? But I think there are parts of, I guess there are parts of Washington that are very conservative too, as you kind of move East. Is that true? Yeah, but you have to go over the mountains to get to them. So <laughs> it, it was easy, easy to not cross paths, but you know, that's another reason why it's so important to 
to travel um, so that we do challenge our assumptions, so that we, we hold our assumptions because we believe them to be true and have thought about them, not just because we were told. And I realize not everyone has the privilege to move to Bangladesh like I did, but you know, you can just cross town or go to the local library or often just cross the street to find people with different perspectives. It's so important. We force ourselves to do that and, and challenge our thinking. Absolutely. Well, what was the high school that you went to like? Was was there a lot of diversity there, if not politically, then um, in terms of sort of every other bag, mixed bag you can imagine in a high school? Or was it a private school, public? Uh, there was not a lot of diversity. And, it, you know, it was really, this is for sure another formative part of my life. I went to Lakeside, which is an incredibly elite private school in Seattle. It has since become much more... Um, socially uh, focused on social justice and much more racially diverse. But just to give you a sense of what it was like, it's the school where Bill Gates went. Um, We were constantly told we were the cream of the crop, the smartest Mm. kids, which I don't think is a healthy thing to be told. It was interesting for me to be there because um, I was absolutely the scholarship kid. My mom was the first kid in her family to go to college. Um, I was raised by a single mom who was a school nurse. And so I was plopped down in perhaps one of my earliest cross-cultural experiences um, in a school where people got Volvos when they turned 16 and were all members of the tennis club. Yeah. So it it was fascinating for me to be exposed to this kind of wealth. And um, even though it wasn't always comfortable and I often felt awkward because I didn't have the right shoes or the Varney sunglasses or whatever, Mm -hmm. it it actually was good for me because it, it took away the veneer of thinking wealth provides happiness because Mm. I saw a lot of rich, a lot of unhappy kids. And so it was good to get that out of my system early. No kidding. Do you, do you come from a large family? My one mom and three kids and two dogs and four cats and various (laughs) reptiles. (laughs) Did your siblings uh, also go to that school or were you uh, a standout in that way? Uh, my sister went there, and my brother went there for a while, and then switched to a slightly mellower private school. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I told you my mom was the first kid in her in her family, first person in her family to graduate from college, and she said she just thought education was um, salvation. She said she'd spend her last dollar on education, and I really appreciate the the value that she instilled in me around education, but also that she said just get educated, and I don't care what you do. So when I got all my degrees and then said, I'm going to go be a radical environmentalist. She said, go, honey, go. She never said, no, be a lawyer or a doctor. It's no, just that's about great. getting the education so the doors are there for you. And, and what, you know, as you're talking about the experience of kind of being the quote unquote other in the school, um, how did that contribute or did it contribute to also the sense of, and, and I'm, by the way, I'm the worst f- at forming questions ever because I'm basically asking 25 questions and I'm trying to cram it into one question. Uh, but I guess what I'm interested in is this, um, you know, for those guests I have that have really made huge strides in, in some way, in, in, in public life, in, you know, taking a stand um, and feeling empowered to do that. I, when I was a teenager, I just didn't, you know, for some people that the the youth is all about the sort of the sky's the limit and it's before maybe you, you know, start to feel like you're tethered to the to the ground on some level. Although, you know, puberty and acne can certainly help uh, burst that bubble. But, <laughs> um, but you know, the, I was just so meek and, and I was not I was not an unconfident uh, teenager, but I I I don't feel like I felt like I had the power to be the agent of change. 
you know, as a young person. Is that something that you connected with early or is it something that developed along the way? I definitely did not have that sense of agency early on. <laughs> Why am I relieved? Oh, it's, it's too late for who me does? to relive it anyway, but I'm like, oh, good. That's really, really. Thanks, Annie. Don't you wish you could go back and redo it now with your the sense of agency? Just be you have fierce as, as hell. Yeah. Um, the the one thing I, I do think I got out of, I mean, many things I got out of the school, and it, it was a really incredible school academically, and I'm very grateful that for the scholarship and financial aid they gave me. But I'll tell you, it, it made me comfortable with being an outsider because there was no way I was going to get a Volvo and be a part of the tennis club and all these things. It just wasn't an option. So I could either have been in, just totally dwarfed by insecurity or I could just say hey I'm different and that's cool and (laughs) embrace that and being able to be comfortable with being an outsider just opens a lot more possibilities in life so I'm really grateful to it and what was that process like for you I mean when you like how were was it how were you treated by the your fellow students and what was that process like of sort of going you know what I'm gonna get comfortable with this because I can't imagine that it felt great initially well, you know, the, a lot of the not feeling great part was associated with materialism. And I, mean, I don't know how old you are, but in my day, everyone had to have these stupid Varney sunglasses and Calvin Klein jeans. And there was so yeah. much focus on specific items that were hardship for our family to get. Um, and so I have to choose hardship or making peace with what I have. And making peace with what you have is just a way better life than the hardship of always trying to keep up. Yeah. So, so one part of it was that... But, you know, actually, you know, we were talking earlier about how um, traveling opened your perspective. I went to this school from fifth grade to 12th grade. It was a very small, very homogenous school. I think there were two kids of color in our class that were always on the front page of the annual report, of course. Uh-huh. And it gets much, diff- much, much different now. But it was so small and so homogenous, and I was so antsy to see the world that I decided to do something totally different my junior year of high school to pick the most different school I could find. So I was at a co-ed day school in Seattle. I got a book, because this was before the internet, and looked up, and I found a all-girls boarding school right outside New York City and applied, and my mom was sort of chuckling at my little project and got in and got scholarship, and mom was like, wait a minute, you were serious about this? <laughs> and I went and spent my junior year at this all-girls boarding school in New York City where there was a different set of material items that people. I was going to say, I, yeah, as as a as a public school child whose parents were both teachers, uh, that still to me is like, oh my, that seems extremely intimidating. Still, yeah, I know. I don't know what I was thinking, but you know, I just wanted to try something <laughs> different, so I, I did. But when I saw, oh, these people obsess over different kinds of sunglasses instead of Varnays, <laughs> it took the it took the glitz of Varnays point. I'm like, oh, we can choose what we obsess over. It is not right. ordained by gravity or the right. gods or something. We can pick. We can pick what we are concerned about. So that was Absolutely. very uh, liberating. Absolutely. Were you <laughs> were you like a secondhand kid? Were you a thrift store uh, thrift store shopper? Were you uh, a hand me downs from your sister? Oh heavens, not from my sister, but <laughs> but from the thrift stores for certain. But you know, it was kind of cool back then to when you had more time than money to go dig through the thrift shops and find cool stuff and sew patches on it and all that. Is, and, 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 and is that another kind of, I mean, 
Yeah, because you're what you're even of course even in Seattle, it's not going to be a, just a city of people who are all kind of holding hands singing kumbaya and putting you know <laughs> bottles into a recycling bin in the seventies, eighties, nineties. What did you find? Were there people around that weren't a part of your school that you kind of looked to friendships that you had outside of that that uh, that were meaningful and and kind of grounded you when when you know everybody else was sort of looking at their sunglasses and patting themselves on the back. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, I lived in a neighborhood where people didn't move. So there were lots of kids in the neighborhood that I knew from birth until now because people just didn't move. Um, my, my mom was involved in the Unitarian Church, which is a really great community. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we are not really religious. That was the place where I went to hear El Salvadorian refugees talk about the war there or register as a conscientious objector when I was 12. And, you know, it was a really socially oriented kind of a church. Um, and we were right next to the university. And, you know, anytime around a big university, that's just a lot of different kind of people coming by, events, lectures, you know, really, really anywhere you are. If you're interested in finding good people, there's good people. Mm-hmm. D- what, um, when you say that it wasn't a particularly religious uh, organization, uh, it, that was something that, you know, I, these guys know, I grew up um, with an atheist dad and and a and a, you know, my parents were separated and then subsequently divorced. Um, and I'm an only child. My mom raised me for basically on Sundays because she had custody of me on Sundays <laughs> and I had to go to Mormon church with her. And I had a couple wow. of friends who were universalist. Yeah. And I, I just looked on it with such envy, um, because there was so much about this, the stuff that I was being told that didn't really work for me. But then I also had this atheistic dad who, is extremely social and sociable. And I think, you know, probably would consider himself a secular humanist. But uh, for me that there was, there was almost like with my universalist friends, I, I almost felt like they were secular humanists. Like they weren't really talking about God using the words I was familiar with from, from, you know, having to go to, to church with my mom. Um, so, so when you say it wasn't particularly religious, what does the service look like uh, for you as a teenager at, at a universalist church in Seattle? Well, I'll tell you, one time when I was uh, very young, I asked the Sunday school teacher there, I said, do we believe in God or not? Like, I couldn't figure out what was happening because <laughs> it, it just seemed fun. <laughs> you know, right. when people in school would talk about, do they believe in God or not? I'm like, I'm not sure. Right. And so I asked the, the Sunday school teacher and she said, we don't know if there's a God or not, but we think it's more important to just focus on making life better for everybody here now. And I was like, wow. okay, cool. Yeah. And to... to I thought that was great. And so I think there's probably some people there believe in God, some people that don't. But instead of fighting about that, let's put the energy into making the world a better place. Absolutely. Well, that's one thing that I think I always kind of, you know, my dad has a wonderful community of friends, many of whom are friends with one another. And, uh, and I'm sure he would, you know, certainly say that, that there's nothing lacking in his life. And I, and, and because he converted and went to church with my mom, um, early in their marriage before it became clear that that was a ginormous commitment that he probably (laughs) never should have made. Um, you know, I think he did kind of get a kick out of like, you know, playing on their basketball teams and, you know, going on field trips with uh, my mom and, and then me as a tiny baby before they split up. And I think that's that is the kind of the permission to be in a community organization like that, that does create this sense of, you know, companionship in on, on a group scale um, 
without being too terribly didactic, uh, is, is something that I think I would have liked. I mean, I think I would, I think I liked what was community, um, focused about being at church, but I, I wasn't interested in, you know, feeling like people outside of that were not, were like really missing out or in deep trouble or something. Right. If we could have the community part and the make the world better part and the love and kindness part without the the judgment and scorn and wraths of hell part, then they'd yeah. be yeah. just and right. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and then from what you say, it sounds like, I think that, that we're, I, I want to believe we're headed more towards that than not um, as, a, as a species. But what do you think about that? Oh, I think we absolutely are. Um, I think we had a turn in the wrong way for a number of uh, decades and I think people got lonely. I mean, if you, if you look at the data, a lot of group activity has declined over the previous four to five decades. Um, we're working longer hours than we have before, spending more time commuting, more time alone looking at screens. And the kind of things that are going away to make the space for all that is ac- neighborhood activities, civic activities, community things, and we hunger for it. So I am really feeling hopeful about a turn that I see all across the country of people in all different generations saying they want more community in their life. And how yeah. can we reconfigure our lives to have more time for what really matters? And inc- not everywhere, but for sure, but increasingly more and more people choosing time and community over more stuff. And that's what gives me hope, because really what is going to provide the kind of um, meaning and and purpose that we all want in life and what's going to help us as climate change gets worse is not a pair of Varnay sunglasses or, you know, fancy car, but it's uh, having community. I should tell you that Varney Sunglasses is one of the sponsors of this podcast. I'm just kidding. I don't even know if they still exist. Do they still exist? Listen, it's close enough to my last name, although really not particularly. <laughs> like, not really. Like, really, when you break it down, there's, like, some of the same letters. Um, and there is nothing. There is zero association between, you know, my sort of family history and that company. But <laughs> I was a child in the 80s. And um, so people would call me Janet Varney just because that was sort of the, you know, this thing that was ubiquitous. And, um, and, and I, and I was like, so frustrated by it. It was, I, I, I took it very seriously at the time. I was like, I know, listen, no, <laughs> there's no, I don't, I I'm not, you I don't, my, no. my symbol of, of materialism. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, let me just say this really quickly. I'm very glad that you just made a joke about being triggered because, um, I would love to get your take on this thing that I've been struggling with. And I talked about it um, sort of loosely on someone else's podcast who, uh, is a a little bit more of, um, what, how do I want to say this? He's just, he's just, uh, more relentless and, uh, and, and fearless uh, about kind of taking the piss out of people and things. And I sort of worry (laughs) about that stuff more. Um, but we had this whole conversation where, you know, we ended up going into this riff about the idea of being triggered and, um, and I played along with him, uh, and and then I got a, a letter from someone, and I, I think maybe I talked about this, maybe even just in an intro, or maybe I just replied to it, but someone sent me a note and said, listen, I really don't appreciate you making fun of this idea of being triggered. You know, for, for many of us, that's a very real situation, and, and the sensitivity that's being paid towards um, certain topics and issues, uh, I think, is really important. And I, I felt, my first response was, like, I felt terrible. And then my next response was, 
you know, I'm a person who has a history of, um, I, I, I always am uncomfortable using the term mental illness, but I think if it opens things up and makes people feel more comfortable about acknowledging what they're going through or have gone through, then, then by all means I should get comfortable with it. So I've been, uh, these guys know very overt about my experiences, particularly as a young person, um, with some pretty interesting, uh, psychological twists and turns that I had as an emotional young woman. And, um, and, and, so there are things that I would say uh, are triggers for me on some level. But, and I'm just curious of what your take on that is. I, 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 for me, when someone says, if I'm listening to, for example, uh, a podcast, This American Life, uh, you know, an NPR type podcast, where they say, well, for this next story, we just want to give you a quick warning that this contains um, material about panic attacks or material about, uh, sexual abuse. Um, you know, if, if this is, if that's a trigger for anyone, we just want to give you the warning. This may not be the right story for you. And for me, Annie, what happens is that using that term is almost worse for me than if I just got to decide it on my own, or if I just got to hear it in the moment as it's unrolling, because for me, hearing the word trigger makes me think of all of the things that are triggers. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like oh, to, yeah. for, boys, for, it, for me, I'm like, word. I would rather, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to think of it that way. And I don't mean to be insensitive for people who really are benefiting from that, but I really struggle with it. And I struggle with it again, as a person who feels like it could apply, I would rather, if it gets to a place where I start to feel uncomfortable listening to something, uh, I would rather make that decision to turn it off rather than be warned every time there might be something that makes me uncomfortable because then I sort of look at the world as if I'm looking for triggers. Does that make sense? Right. And if, if you're, whether you're looking for them or not, the world is full of potential triggers. So uh, my sense about triggers is that it, what's really important is how we relate to that trigger. And do we allow that trigger to take over ourselves and cloud our ability to respond? I mean, I'm triggered by injustice, and I never want to not be triggered by injustice. Like, I, we should be triggered by injustice. But I'm also triggered by things that I should probably just get over that because I'm neurotic right. or petty or, you know, right. judgmental. So there's, there's different kinds of triggers. But, but I find for myself that one of the ways that I can take away the power of the kind of triggers I shouldn't be triggered by is make fun of it and make fun of me and say I'm triggered and, and have a little self-deprecation. One of the ways to deal with the triggers on the big things like racism and systemic injustice is get involved in doing something about it. Mm-hmm. I'd rather see that kind of action than just um, being paralyzed by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good, that's actually a really great way of looking at it. Cause I think that speaks to my sense of, I don't want us to over, shelter ourselves, And obviously when you get into something, if it's extremely personal, if it's, if something happened to you that was extremely traumatic and extremely personal, of course I want to be sensitive to that. I'm just trying to navigate my fear that, you know, I was listening to, I was listening to one, uh, I think it was an Invisibilia, which is a, a lovely podcast and um, sort of an emotionally attuned podcast while still being, you know, very intellectual and kind of science oriented. And, um, and someone said, I, I think, I believe, and I shouldn't be quoted on this, but, uh, but that it was something about bullies and that there was this sort of note of, by the way, this, sh- this story involves bullying. And if that triggers anyone that might, this not, might not be the story for you. Well, I was, I was bullied and I had some pretty traumatic things happen to me as a young person, but I would rather, 
I would rather be forced to feel those feelings and move through them as I empathize with someone else who had that situation than shut myself off to it. And, you know, I guess that's just a, a, a personal thing that each person has to figure out for themselves. But because it's become this pervasive term right now in the zeitgeist, I find myself thinking about it a lot, you know? Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, I mean, and, and granted, there are some people who have had such traumatic experiences that that's a different situation. But for, for most of us, if something triggers us because we don't like it, let's fix it. If bullying triggers us, instead of avoiding any mention of bullying, let's find out how some people have dealt with bullying and start experimenting with new approaches and let's solve it. Yeah. that's uh, That actually brings me to wanting to ask you, too, about... Um, you know, for you with what you do and and the vast amount of kind of activity and contact that you have with the world and needing to kind of be have a thick skin, right? Or or steel yourself against adversity or steel yourself against people who who say, you know, you don't have the right to have this loud of a voice in this way, which I'm sure you've been told over time. Um, that there's this potential for cynicism or bitterness because the more people put themselves out there in support of a cause and the more controversial the cause the more they're going to be subjected to that and so I think the question kind of comes up of how like and that's sort of what I why why I said what how do you feel about where we're headed as a species in terms of even just religion is um there's this can be this opportunity to be totally defeated and feel cynical about people who don't know yet or have made the determination they don't agree with what you believe in versus feeling optimistic and feeling that push forward and feeling, you know, that passion. Um, is that something that you've struggled with over the, over the course of your career as, as you grew into an adult and, and, and are the person that you are? You know, I really haven't struggled with that. I um, just lean into optimism and hope and I, I do it for a couple of reasons. Actually, sometimes I think it might just be chemical, the way my brain is, because the scientific data does not back up being optimistic <laughs> on, on a lot of fronts. <laughs> so I absolutely admit there is an irrationality to it that might just be chemical. And, you know, thank my parents' DNA for that, um, because it's just really <laughs> good to have that reservoir of optimism. But um, there's a couple of other reasons that I do lean towards optimism and hope. Um, one is that there are a lot of people all over the world that want to live in a different way a way that is more sustainable and more healthy and more fair and, and more fun. There are a lot of people who don't want to be on this corporate, you know, rat, corporate-dominated, toxic, chemical-laden rat race, but want something different in life. And you see people opting out, whether it's downsizing or more volunteering or whatever it is, you see all over the world people are beginning to chart a different path. But the other reason that I lean towards hope and optimism is it's, it's a choice I made. You know, we can't decide everything that happens in the world, but we can decide to, to at least a large extent how we choose to relate to that. And CO2 is building up in the atmosphere and toxic chemicals are building up in our bodies um, and the oceans are dying. There's all this stuff going on. I can decide how I want to relate to that. And so I have made a conscious decision that I'm going to be hopeful and I'm going to be optimistic. And in a way, I think of it as my 
most personal form of resistance or my most personal act of resistance. These big corporate polluters have taken so much from us, you know, whether it's rivers that we used to swim in or took from me the ability to breastfeed my child without fear because I knew what toxic chemicals I was passing on to her. They've taken so much from us that I just want to draw a line in front of me and say, you can't take my mood. You can't take my joy. You can't take what I feel every single morning when I get up do my stretch and say, I am going out to fight the good fight for a green and peaceful planet. I'm just, I'm not going to let give it up. I can't have it. So it's partly it's chemical, partly it's, it's buoyed by the incredible work people are doing all over the world. And partly it's, it's a actual choice I made. I'm going to, I'm going to choose hope. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And I think that's, that's a that's a that's a that's a personal choice on on this sort of massive global level that we talk about when you know when you do talk about some of the the biggest causes that you are fighting for every day but also it becomes like such a, a microcosm solution as well in terms of this one person that you see on a daily basis who you know, toxic relationships, not just toxic chemicals in, in our bloodstreams, but also toxic relationships and, and toxic thoughts, right? right. It's all yeah. a part a part of that. And I think that's, that becomes like this very big kind of philosophical question too, which is um, what's going on on an emotional, personal one-to-one level that makes people feel unempowered or that makes people feel unmotivated or makes people feel helpless about being the agents of change or, you know, and again, even in as simple as this is this one activity I'm going to do differently from here on out. It's small, but it's going to show me that I'm capable of more. Um, and by extension that we're all capable of more. And then here's, you build on that and you build on that. And then suddenly these huge waves of change are happening that there is this kind of, you know, what, what am I, what am I looking at in my day to day that kind of brings me down that turns everyone inward and, and doesn't, yeah, it doesn't give us that sense of community and, and, and just sort of is like, well, it seems to me like this, this thing is just going the way it's going. And, and, you know, I don't, I've got enough to worry about, you know, there's, right. there's people, so many small people often moments. Ask me, so people often ask me, isn't it hard to try to save the Indonesian rainforest and stop fossil fuel expansion and protect the oceans? Isn't that hard? I say, yeah, it's hard, but you know, it'd be harder not trying. I mean, that would be intolerable. It is, it is really being involved in campaigns like Greenpeace is running that fuels that hope every day. And so if, if people are feeling discouraged or feeling like there isn't a way for them to make a difference. First thing to do is plug in with people who are making a difference. You know, sign, join the Greenpeace Volunteer Network, which is on our website, or join any group, any that local group, national group, international group. Just get involved. It is the absolute best antidote to that um, sense that we can't change anything. Another thing, though, is to read history. Look at the um, women's suffragette movement. Look at the abolitionist movement. Look at the civil rights movement. I mean, our country has a beautiful history of people coming together and changing stuff that at one point seemed unchangeable. And there's no reason we have to stop that legacy right now. We can just keep doing it. That is fantastic. Let me ask you this. Uh, As a teenager, what did you feel passionate about? And it can be as, you know 
simple as I just absolutely love eating this for breakfast every morning, or um, it can be a musician that you were really inspired by, or, you know, um, from, from even just the little stuff, you know, that, that, that made you feel excited, whether it's something that passed or not. I mean, let's, you know, we were a teenager, like there's, (laughs) there's plenty of room to feel self-conscious and there's plenty of room to go. I don't know why I was so obsessed with French fries. Uh, you know, that I, I, think I, I, was, I think I was a little ADD because I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. No, wait, this over here is so exciting. No, this over here is, I think I was. <laughs> what were some was of the things like that, that you were flitting around for, on? Well, I'll tell you, I really loved the forest. I was lucky that this high school I went to, middle and high school I went to, forced us to go hiking a lot. I mean, I called it forced when I was 10. And by the time I was in high school, I loved it. We went on multi-day backpacking trips, you know, starting Whoa. with just a couple of days at a time. The, the final one was about 20-day backpacking trip in the Canyonlands of Utah in the senior year of high school. Oh, my God. I mean, that is just a stunning, stunning experience. And I mean, that is where about... money at a private school does come in handy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or what about the week-long field trip to San Francisco to see Broadway plays? Oh, for God's <laughs> yeah, sake. They're... Yikes. <laughs> I recently went to my high school reunion and I took my daughter and she was walking around this campus and she said, you went here, mom? Yeah. Like, oh my God. It's <laughs> like, yes, I did, honey. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it, you know, I was, a, I was lucky and privileged um, and learned so many things. Were you a bit, uh, but, were you a bit, think, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, please. I was just going to say being in nature and, you know, I didn't even know the science to understand why um, ecologically we need nature to survive and the different sort of neurological benefits of being in nature. I didn't know any of that. I just know it felt good. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you want to do what feels good. And for me, it was just getting out into nature. Oh, that's so great. Were you a reader? Were you an avid reader? Did you kind of love disappearing into worlds that other people had created in addition to being in your own and, and being out in the in the forest? Well, we all read then because there was nothing else to do. <laughs> I, was, I, was I was explaining to my daughter there was four channels, and if you missed the show, you never had another opportunity to see it again. That was it. <laughs> yeah. You know what else are you going to do? There were no there were no screens to look at. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so boy. yeah, we all read back then. <laughs> and were you? Were, did you listen to music? Were you a big? Um, you know, did did that speak to you? Because I have friends who, uh, you know, I've said this before on the podcast, but friends who uh, music just didn't really play a role. You know, it was like, oh, I listened to whatever was on. And then, you know, all the way to someone who's like, oh, no, that's the reason that I learned how to play guitar. And that's why I'm in this jazz band now. Or, you know, this is I started writing poetry because of Joni Mitchell, like that sort of thing. Um, were you did you were there artists that uh, had established themselves that were speaking to you on in that kind of way? Uh, there was one band that I was absolutely obsessed with, and with my friends and I traveled around the country, saw over 200 concerts. You can probably guess which one it is. It is Lionel the Grateful Dead. Richie. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, the Grateful Dead. We, my <laughs> friends and I traveled, our parents were very lenient, traveled all over the country seeing Grateful Dead shows. And I think, I loved the music for sure, but I think I also loved the real sense of community, it was having this pack of friends that we literally traveled all over the country going to these shows. Um, I remember in college, I took a class that was called Religious Cults in Contemporary American Society, and we were supposed to go spend some time with a cult. And so I said, okay, I'm going on Grateful Dead tour. I'll be back in two weeks. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So uh, I really did. And I still, to this day, love the Grateful Dead. It dates me somewhat, but I don't care. They are just so good. So I still love to crank them. 
Uh, that was something that, uh, and, and by the way, I have peers who were deadheads who came in later or, you know, whose parents took them to shows or, uh, and then I've met uh, people who are in college now who lament that they, you know, didn't have the experience of really um, experiencing the band in in its completion and all that kind of stuff. And I think that to me is something that, uh, and I've been talking about this a lot lately on on the podcast, is, is this idea of when you're a teenager... Um, feeling like things belong to other people and that they can't also be yours. And I, and for some reason that was, while I embraced the sort of, the sort of goth, uh, world and felt like, yeah, 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 I'm entitled to this. Like I, I can have this, I can listen to the cure and Depeche mode and, and suddenly drastically change the way I dress and stuff. Um, for me, <laughs> the grateful dead was something I heard about, uh, anecdotally for such a long time. Um, that it was an it was an other thing right it was this other thing that other people did and for some reason i always there was like i would draw these lines these unintentional you know unconscious lines in the sand almost where it's like oh well i've been hearing about that for so long clearly that's not something i was ever meant to do because i've just heard about it opposed to going hey here's this thing i've been hearing about maybe i should check it out do you know what i'm saying it's so funny how we as human beings just tell ourselves these stories that limit what we can do. Yeah. Like that's a perfect example. And think of all the other stories we tell ourselves. I can't do that because why? There's no reason you can't do that. Or, or yeah. you know, I shouldn't raise my voice here. It's like these self-limiting stories. Humans are just so funny the way we do that. <laughs> but did, really... you, did you ever go to a concert, a dead concert? I never went. I never went. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I, and, and I went to school in Flagstaff, Arizona, where people were constantly talking about dead shows they'd been to. And then it sort of evolved into fish shows with that particular group of people in Flagstaff. But that's a real like deadhead town. Um, and again, it's like I moved into this town to go to college and that was like already a thing. And I was like, well, that's I mean, that's I guess that's already a thing. So but that's not going to be me. It's just funny. Oh, yeah, it is yeah. funny. It's, it's it funny, it's funny what our minds do to ourselves. It really is. Boy, it, is it ever. Um, listen, Annie, I want to get into this MASH game. Uh, I'm very excited to uh, to do it with you. Um, <laughs> I've got these different uh, categories, right, that I'll, I'll give you. Um, I'll say, okay, give me an example of three blanks, and then in the end we'll do like a little doodle uh, that I that will create this sort of eeny, meeny, miny, mo um, situation in which I will reveal to you. Okay. You know, 100% guaranteed <laughs> fictional MASH future. Um, I'm going to start out with uh, three, let's do three places in the world um, that you could have a sort of second home. And and let's pretend that getting there is no, it's not, that's not a huge issue. It's not like, oh, I have to get on a, you know, fuel guzzling plane for 14 hours. It's almost like you can magically be transported there. Three places in the world you'd love to have a, a second home. Oh, that's a delicious question. <laughs> All right, you ready? I'm ready. Orcas Island. Mm. You know that place off Seattle, I Orcas Island? love it. Yeah, love it My too. My dad goes there um, every, every year. Oh, he's so lucky. It's, yeah. it's incredible. So Orcas Island will take Manhattan, Upper West Side, please. Great. Cent- Central Park West, if possible. Uh-huh. And Car- <laughs> Around 80th. Okay. Um, and Kerala in India. The state of Kerala. Wonderful. India. 
Okay, wonderful. Um, okay, next one. Uh, this is one of my favorites. And this actually, I, this might be interesting for you um, because I'll be interested in on your twist or on your take on it. But uh, I always love uh, three foods uh, that are in this world bad for you on some level. And it could be that it's, you know, made in this way that's unhealthy or it could just be like, let's face it, pasta every day is maybe not a great idea. Um, but three <laughs> foods that in this alternate universe have somehow conformed into like, you can just pluck them right off the tree in your backyard anytime you want. And it's totally full of nutrients and vitamins. Three. Oh man. But I like, love this know, game. Take advantage of it. Really, really get in there with uh, some doozies that you wouldn't really necessarily want to have every time here because they're not good for you. All right, the opera cake that my teenage daughter makes me once a year for my birthday because mm. it's such a pain. She'll only make it once a year. Oh, it's so good with <laughs> almond flour. So oh, taking yum, yum. opera cake. Great. Coffee. Coffee, Great. which I know climate change is going to eventually force us to give up. And tuna, tuna fish. Yep. These are, this is exactly what the game is for, my friend. You are playing it like an oh, ace. No, I'm hungry now. <laughs> Okay, let's do um, let's do three skills that you wake up with tomorrow. Um, this sort of idea, you know, in a perfect world, we spend ten thousand hours becoming uh, a maestro at something. But in this crazy world of ours, this mash world, tomorrow you wake up and you'll have one of three skills. It can be, you know, speaking all languages, or it could be just being amazing uh, at solving your own technological quandaries, anything like that that's um, not really a superpower, but frankly, to me, probably does seem like a superpower. <laughs> It'll just be something that would take that much time to perfect. Oh, it's so hard to pick three. I'll pick speaking Spanish. Great. Playing the piano. Great. And fixing things. Great. Great, great, great. Okay. Especially Next category. electronics. Imagine oh, if we could yeah, fix right? those things instead oh, of throw them out. I mean... Uh, yes, yes, indeed. Um, okay, now this is a MASH game. Uh, this is a very traditional aspect of the MASH game. This is in an alternate universe. Um, it could be just a kind of sexy times person that uh, you sort of get to spend a night with, or it could be the sort of alternate universe companion um, or something in between. But, you know, it can be a character from book. It can be a cartoon. I don't care. It can be uh, an actor or actress that we all know. No one's saying like, you know, this person for reals um, just crushes, you know, the characters. It could be Paul Newman from, you know, a very specific era. Uh, but three people that um, in this alternate universe would be fun to spend some romantic time with hmm okay i have my, my daughter tells me this is awful but andy samberg <laughs> that guy is so cute that is what <laughs> oh the game God. is for absolutely <laughs> he's so cute oh yeah um a younger denzel washington great oh and tim robbins oh wonderful 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 wait but there's nobody there who can sing to me i missed that that's right. Uh, Andy can sing. Well, t now listen, Tim Robbins did that movie, Bob Roberts, where he was a folk singing Republican. That's, so that's right. If you want that's him right. to serenade you with songs about how hippies are dirty, then <laughs> <laughs> you're in great those, shape. Those are my three secret crushes. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, next one is uh, there's so in your house that you're in right now. Kind of like Harry Potter almost with this sort of room of necessity or requirement. I really apologize to all of you guys who absolutely love Harry Potter and are cursing me right now that I can't conjure up the name. 
but this rumor idea of the rumor requirement, right? Where where there's this 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 place in your house that doesn't take up any more space because it's almost like you're going into a different dimension, but it's a room that serves it could be the most whimsical purpose in the world or the most practical purpose, but three things like, "Oh, you didn't know about my greenhouse I can just go into um that is, you know, 200 square feet and it has all these beautiful tropical plants or it could just be, "Oh, my nap room where I literally don't go in there unless I am going to fall asleep for 2 hours." Anything like that where it's a sort of a magical extra room in your house that can be filled, the three types of rooms. Oh, this is so fun. It's a gym. <laughs> a gym with an excellent sound system. Right. It's my orchid growing greenhouse. Yes, indeed. And it's my dog play yard. <laughs> Love where it. Where I keep my dozen dogs that I forgot to tell you about. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, you're really going to need that play yard. Um, I know, and the, the poop magically disappears. It's awesome in this room. Oh, that's a great room. Boy, I want in on that room. I may drop my dogs off. Um, okay, next category will be, uh, let's do three. Actually, I like I like this idea since we just talked about it. Three pets that for some reason are not practical uh, at this time. Now, I want to extend that out to you would like Snoopy, you know, and when I use the term pet, I use it in quotations <laughs> because a lot of the time the things I would want as pets are actually just like, oh no, I would just want this to be my best friend. Um, but three animal kind of companions that it could be, you know, oh, in real life I would want um, a giraffe, but it's impractical and unkind. Or it could be uh, that you would want a dragon, like a totally fictitious thing. Or like I said, Snoopy, three. I, I would love a monkey. I just think we could get along so well if I had a monkey in this house. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I would love a baby elephant because they're so cute and oh, they're so man. threatened and I would keep him him or her safe here. Yes, yes, and yes, yes. Does, does Dobby count? Is Dobby a pet? Yeah, let's put Dobby, Dobby in there. Can... Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, those eyes. You just want to take care of him yeah. and make everything okay again forever, even though he wants to take care of you and make everything okay for you forever. I love well, it. Also, when he stood up and said, Dobby has no master, I'm like, yes. I <laughs> if only know. we could all get to that point. I know. Oh, those those like therapeutic, cathartic moments in film. Actually, let's do that. This is one of my favorites. Let's do three movie worlds. Uh, that you can go into and hang out in wherever you, whenever you want. So you're kind of in a safety bubble. It's not like you know suddenly you're going to go into Goodfellas and get shot. This is we're talking about. <laughs> uh, it's it's just, it's it's just for fun and play and joy. Um, but three and so you're not going in to be a character in a movie. You're going in to just be with those those characters or be in that world. Three films. Gosh, that one's harder. Um... I think I'll take where the wild things are. Oh, great. And and, and if you want to expand it out to a book, too, that's also totally acceptable. All right. uh, Well, that's good. Where the wild things are. And uh, the little prince. Great. And I guess you got to say Harry Potter because. I mean, why not? You got it. It's so interesting. She built a pretty marvelous world, I have to say. Fantastic. Okay, and then final one is if you could – now, this is a tough one because it's, it's sort of the – again, it's like a lot of where we need to get involves the work that we need to get there. But let's just say you could change three things about the world tomorrow. What would they be? I would um, 
have national health care for everybody so that everybody everywhere had had safe, available Marvelous. access to health care. I just think that Marvelous. think that would help the world so much. I would um, get us off fossil fuel. No more fossil fuel. Keep it in the ground. Totally renewable energy. Great. And I'd make everybody compost. It's like compost is so simple. It would make the country, the world, it would make it so much better. I'd make everybody compost. It's like people want to know what little thing they can do to make a big difference. Compost. Well, let me ask you this because I want to, we'll finish this up while I, while I do this kind of review and give you um, your, your imaginary future. Uh, but w- when we talk about something like compost, right, that's a great example, again, of something that you can do that's small. Where would you send people who, you know, walk away from listening to this episode going, I would like to do something. And let's say it's compost, where would you like them to go to say, listen, here's the best place you can go to just get yourself set up, um, figure out, you know, the, just the 101 of everything you need to know and how, how simple it truly is. Uh, where would you like to refer people? You know, on composting, it's so easy that there are literally a thousand websites. I like the kind of composting that use worms and there's a great website called Worms Eat My Garbage. Worms cool Eat My Garbage. They make your garbage go away, and then you get this amazing fertilizer, which makes my tomatoes so abundant. Oh, this is quite wonderful. WormsEatMyGarbage.org. WormsEatMyGarbage.org. I love it. Okay. uh, (laughs) Why don't you – let's see. I just have to do this quick little doodle thing that will – that will create the formula for me to do my eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I'm making this sound way more official than it is. Uh, so just – I'm going to start this, and you just tell me when to stop, and it can be, it can be pretty fast. Okay, ready? I'm starting. Okay. Mm, stop. Okay, great. All right, Annie, I want to thank you so much for doing the podcast. It's been such a joy. Uh, I can't wow. wait to meet you in person. Um, I have some wonderful results. Uh, I say that like I'm a doctor who just <laughs> did some sort of physical. Um, I'm going to give you your prognosis. It's very positive. It's very, very positive. Um, okay, first of all, I want to congratulate you Excellent. on the fact that you <laughs> successfully will have the world composting as of tomorrow. So, well done. Uh, I hope everyone heard that and everyone's listening because um, <laughs> get ready. You're going to start composting. Might as well go to that website now, wormsymygarbage.org. Uh, I want to... I know that's the thing. That's what I'm excited about. You that that's the one that is the most because sort of like hey, let's just do all tomorrow. do it. Why not? <laughs> it's actually um, possible. So that's fabulous. <laughs> I want to congratulate you on uh, your beautiful house on uh, in Manhattan's Upper West Side. I believe it's right around 80th. So I'm very impressed. When something uh, goes wrong, something uh, you know, it's probably an older <laughs> house. Um, and uh, when something is on the fritz, I want to reassure you: you have the ability to just basically fix anything that goes awry. So tinker to your heart's content because it's always going to turn out to be fixed. And that includes all of the exercise equipment in your beautiful gym. Uh... Which also, of course, is the secret room, <laughs> the hidden room inside your current home in the Bay Beautiful. Area. Uh, I want to congratulate you on your uh, companionship with Dobby, who I bet would have a really good time going into the world of the Little oh, Prince I'm with so you. Happy. I think he would probably find that quite magical. And uh, I think he would also <gasps> oh. probably enjoy eating unlimited amounts of the opera cake that your daughter makes because in this world you can have it at the snap of a finger 
right in front of you. No oh. negative ramifications to anyone's health of any kind. Pretty fabulous. And I'll tell you who else is going to be uh, eating that cake with you. You're going to be feeding him morsels of it uh, right into his beautiful mouth is a younger Denzel Washington. <laughs> yeah. And that, uh, Annie, is your MASH future. Uh, I can manage it. that. Really, really great outcome. Could not ask for more than that. Anywhere else uh, well, that you would like to send people, um, Annie, so to, to learn more. If you have not checked out the story of stuff, please do so. Uh, it will blow your mind. And again, the sort of focus uh, that Annie wants you to walk away with is one of optimism, right? It's not something that you're supposed to expose yourself to and then feel lost about. It's something to celebrate. Absolutely. And um, Story of Stuff is a great place for seeing films and getting involved, as is Greenpeace. Greenpeace.org. We have lots of opportunities for people to get involved. Um, I'd love it if people join us, get involved, come Wonderful. to some of our meetings. I got to um, go you know, uh, get my warm started. Because we can do it, starting with our composting. <laughs> <laughs> Annie, thank you so much again. And uh, guys, I will talk to you next time <laughs> on the podcast. As always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by The Amazing Say Hi. Now leaving Nerdist.com.